started a new series about five weeks ago. We're going through the book of Mark. Um, oh, and by the way, this right here, this is, this is my protection in case I do say something offensive. I can push and run. Um, no, that wasn't funny. Okay, so we're going through the book of Mark. So we're going through the book of Mark. And um, actually, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've been part of the series or, or, or whatnot. I'm not going to do a lot of recap. Um, so if you haven't been, all the, all the messages are online. You can go back and listen to that. But today we're coming to the end of, of chapter one. So that kind of tells you how we do things around here. We've been in chapter one for, for about five weeks. And uh, today we're going we're gonna to close that out, probably start chapter two next week. Um, but this is what I kind of, what I was doing this week is I was just kind of rereading the text, rereading specifically the text we're going to go over today, rereading, uh, the, the entire first chapter. Here's, here's what we, here's what we know that Mark was trying to communicate at the beginning. Number one, he was, he was answering the question or he was speaking into the issue of who was Jesus. He was, he wanted his audience to know who Jesus was, but not only that, he wanted his, his audience to know what Jesus was about how he was going to do what he was going to do. And, w- and when it comes down to it, kind of what, what Jesus was, what Mark was doing, he was painting a picture of a Jesus that fit in nobody's box. He was painting a picture of a Jesus that stood in conflict and contradiction to every single box that we want to put him in. If that makes sense. And in fact, when, when he begins to talk about the kingdom and and we see, especially if you've read ahead, and we see how Jesus is ushering in the kingdom, what we find is a Jesus who stands very, as a paradox, very opposite of the common thought of the day. To the Pharisees, who were, who were bent and sold and had boxed Jesus into this morality, this, 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 uh, this God who is all about perfect behavior, he came to them as a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of sinners, one who hung out with those who had been marginalized because of their sin. To the Sadducees, who was all about homogenization and compromise and buddying up with the surrounding authorities, he comes as one who is zealous for the law of God. To the Quamron community who had, they were the supreme isolationists. They thought what it meant to be the people of God was to isolate themselves away from the rest of the world. Jesus comes as one who can only be found in the midst of the world. To the church of Rome, which is who this letter is written to, he comes to, a, Mark writes to a people who, who have began to doubt that the kingdom of God is really advancing and that Jesus is really king because every circumstance around them tells them that Caesar is king and it is not the kingdom of God, but it is the kingdom of Rome that is advancing. And Mark speaks into the situation and says, no, Jesus is king. No, his kingdom is advancing, but not in the way you want it to. Really, the situation that Mark was speaking into was not unlike our situation today. Have you ever noticed how much Jesus looks a lot like you? Right? Jesus kind of fits what we look like. Like, in fact, I think this would be an interesting challenge. If we took a room of people, like 20 people or whatever, put them in a room and said, okay, we're not going to tell you who we're talking about. Um, 
but here's what, we, uh, here's what we want you 20 people to do. We want you to describe Jesus without using his name, without using the cross, and without using the resurrection to this one person. And we sent that one person in to listen to each of their descriptions. It is very likely that that person would walk away thinking we described 20 different people. Because the thing about Jesus is, is he refuses to submit to the boxes, to submit to the identities that we like to put him in. See, if we're going to serve a Jesus who is going to save us, who is going to change us, who is going to challenge us, he has to be a Jesus with his own reality. Does that make sense? In fact, if you listen to a lot of people today who, who, who do not follow Christ, but they're interested in the Christian thing, one of the first things they do is they begin to ask questions like, I like this Christian idea, but what is the Christian viewpoint on fill in the blank? And here's what they're saying. Here's what we're saying. I want a Jesus that I can manage. I want a Jesus that is not going to contradict me. I want a Jesus that will not conflict with the way I already live with who I already am. In other words, I want my way to be right, and I just want to put Jesus' name as a sticker over it. And it's just funny to me, especially, I mean, and we see this all over the place, right? I mean, here's some examples. Like, there are some pastors today who swear if Jesus was here today, he, he would be like an MMA fighter and he'd be this gruff dude. And I, I just honestly think he would stand in contradiction to them on that it almost seemed like a pacifist. And then there are those who think Jesus was just this really weak liberal teacher and he would never ask anybody to repent. But the way Jesus would come across to them is someone who is strong and concrete and and calling them to repentance. Because Jesus was never about us making him into his image. See, his highest goal is that he makes us into his image. And he can only do that when his life begins to uncover the issues in your life that are actually trying to transform him. In other words, when the life of Jesus reveals the idolatry in our lives that keep him at arm distance. And I think that's what Mark is getting at today. I think, that, I think that's what Mark is trying to show us as he brings kind of this thought of who Jesus is to a close. So let's go ahead and turn to, uh, where are we? Mark 1.35. If you don't have a Bible, we'll, we'll put it here on the screen. Then Jesus got up early in the morning when it was still very dark, departed, and went out to a deserted place, and there he spent time in prayer. Simon and his companions searched for him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he replied, let's go elsewhere and to the surrounding villages so that I can preach there too, for that is what I came out here to do. So he went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now a leper came to him and fell, and fell to his knees asking for help. If you are willing, you can make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. And the leprosy left him, and at once he was clean. So as Mark draws these, these thoughts of who Jesus was, what Jesus was doing, what he was about, how he was doing it, I think what Mark is doing is he's bringing these four different figures before us. These four different types of common thought on the way we see or the way we handle Jesus. 
And what we have is we have these in, in uh, sorry, this is getting messed up here. In representative form, we have, uh, we have the, you know, Peter and his homies. We have the disciples, okay? We have this crowd that Peter speaks of. And we have, uh, we have this leper. And then the most important part is we have Jesus. Um, and so what I think Mark is, what I think Mark is doing as he brings this stuff to an end is he begins to show us what it looks like and what it means to want Jesus for Jesus and not want Jesus for the stuff. To show, he's wanting to paint the picture of what it looks like to actually believe that Jesus is sufficient no matter how he asks you to live, no matter how he asks you to change. And if you get the stuff in the process, great. If not, Jesus is still better than the stuff. And so first he starts off with, with uh, Peter and his, and his boys. Now, I, I don't know what you talked about here when, when we went through the discipleship section, but what we know about how disciples were chosen back then um, is that the rabbis would go to the cream of the crop. They would go to the best of the best. They would go to the ones that fit the, I've got a vision statement and I've got this and I've got that and I line up and I know how to make the money and close the deal. And he went to those, that's, who, that's how the rabbis picked. They wanted the best there was. Right? So what that tells us, or what we know, is that because Jesus found his disciples not being mentored by other rabbis, but rather fishing or what have you, is that he specifically went to not the best of the best, but those who didn't foot the bill, those who didn't cut it, those who didn't get accepted into Harvard or wherever. He went to the least of these. The ones that society had already said, you're never going to be the popular rabbi, you're never going to make it, you're never going to be known for this. And so now Jesus, they're, he's, they're, they're following Jesus. Jesus begins to get a little popular, right? I'm thinking healing a few people, casting out a few demons might do some good for your PR. And so, and this is what's going on. Now, remember, here's the thing about the way Jesus discipled. When we think of discipleship, we often think of a classroom and somebody's teaching it. Jesus rarely did that. What he seemed to do was bring his people into situations in which the idols that guided them, in which the boxes they had were confronted with the reality of who he was. He's dealing with a group of disciples. If they knew one thing, it was they would never be accepted and they would never be popular. And now guess what? Their boy's getting popular. And the demand, the crowd begins, hey, Jesus, they want you. They want you. We've got the book signing table set up. We've got the posters out. Let's, let's do this. Let's meet the demands. Let's, 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 let's steward your influence. Let's steward your popularity. That's the Christian way to say it. And Jesus has two responses to him. He's like, no, nah, I'm going to go pray. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go pray. I don't, I don't need this. Because see, here's what Jesus shows us. The disciples hadn't gotten yet that who he was as a person, that his very identity, that his very value had nothing to do with his popularity, had nothing to do with the fact that he could accomplish things, that he could heal people, that he could cast out demons. His very value, his very identity, his very worth came from his relationship with the Father. And he knew before he met any demand before he met any need, the first thing he needed to do was reorient himself daily 
This was not a drive-by prayer. I got busy. I need. This is this is purposefully pulling away to refocus, reorient my life so that the demands of the popularity, the demands of the job, the demands of you fill in the blank, the deadline, they don't identify who I am. They don't determine my value. They don't determine my humanity. What determines my humanity, what determines my value is my relationship with the Father. And Jesus got this. And I'm just thinking that if Jesus, God made man, got this, how much more do we need to make room in our lives in a world where we just get busier and busier? It's not kind of the cool thing to say. How are you doing? I'm busy. I'm busy. In which we, we identify ourselves with very many different things. If Jesus needed to do that, how much more do we need to sometimes look at the demands that are put on us and say, no, I need to go do this first so that when I'm over here, it doesn't change who I am at a core level. The second thing, the second way Jesus responded after they're saying, hey, dude, we've got an opportunity here. He says, well, then let's leave. Right. That's not how we respond. I mean, it's an open door, right? The open door theory. God opened the door. I need to walk through it. I'm not saying God doesn't do that every once in a while. But that's not Jesus' response. He refuses to allow the demand of the crowd to create his identity. He refuses to allow the demand of the crowd to create his value. And Jesus was about the gospel. Jesus knew something about the crowd that Mark doesn't point out here. And so that, this will move us into to the next phase. So we've got the disciples, and, and we see that, that Jesus' very reaction to the demand of the crowd reveals their idolatry for things like, popularity and identity. And then you have the crowd, right? He says, Peter says, and everyone has come out to see you. Now, why would Jesus, this loving, compassionate guy, why would he say to this whole crowd, I'm out, deuces, I'm walking out and leave. Now, here's the deal. Mark doesn't say this, but if you travel on over to John chapter two, Jesus kind of does the same thing. And it says in John chapter 2 that Jesus knew the hearts of the crowd. In other words, he knew that the crowd wanted him for the stuff. The crowd wanted him for the healing. The crowd wanted him for the, the, uh, the social acceptance. The crowd wanted him because he was popular. And we don't even need John chapter 2 to tell us this. The way we know this is what the crowd thought of Jesus was you just go to Easter weekend and, and day one, the crowd is worshiping and praising him. And day two, they're saying crucify him. Because they wanted a Jesus who would fit in their box. They didn't want Jesus. And the problem with Jesus is when we begin to draw near to him and we begin to realize he actually conflicts, he actually contradicts, and he stands in opposition to the very things we use to build value in ourselves and identify ourselves with, we kind of do the same thing. We start to look for a Jesus that better fits the image we would like him to be in. And Jesus looks at the crowd and says, I can't do enough for you. Because once I meet this need, I'll have to do this need and this need and this need. And the truth is, I'm more interested in your soul. I'm more interested in your humanity. I'm more interested 
and you loving me. And you might get this stuff, you might not. But remember, God's greatest goal for humanity is that we would be transformed into the image of his son. And it seemed like that if you look through the scriptures, the people that Jesus was drawn to, that he stuck around, were the people who said, I don't just want the stuff. I want you. And if I don't get the stuff, fine. But I want you. And so Jesus knew that. And he walks on. And then we come to the character, and I think this is our contrasting character. We come to the leper. Okay? Now, if we know anything, if we know anything about leprosy back then, especially from a Jewish perspective, it was not just a skin disease. And it was a social disease. Right? You had leprosy, you were done. You were cut off from everything. You were ridiculed. You were marginalized. You were seen as a a scar on the skin of society. In fact, lepers were so looked down on, they were so marginalized, and I'm not going to do this, but you can probably mentally just associate this with different issues today. They were so looked down on that, that they had a separate place away from them from the rest of the good society. And, and just to make it a little more humiliating, anytime a leper came around, he had to start screaming, unclean, unclean, so people knew to stay away from him. And if that was not enough, the rabbis at that time decided, let's not make it just rough on the lepers. Let's make sure we punish those who maybe get a heart for the lepers and ostracize them as well. In fact, there's an old rabbi law from around that time that, um, that if a leper was to go into the shade of a tree on a hot day to cool off, and somebody saw him under that shade, and later he left and somebody else came and stood under that shade, they were considered unclean as well. And they were cast out as well. So forget even touching, right? Because if the leper tries to touch you, we're going to put him to death. But this is, don't even get in the same shadow he was in earlier in the day kind of a deal. This was not just a skin issue. This was not just a, uh, this was not just a uh, health issue. This literally was a societal, a cultural, a humanity issue. So knowing that, it says that now a leper came to him and fell to his knees. So here's what we have. We have this leper who knows all all of this stuff. He knows all the rules. He knows that if Jesus says no, if Jesus rejects, if Jesus does to, to him what Jesus did to his disciples and say, hey, uh-uh, I've got to go, the chances of this man being tortured or receiving death is pretty high. So we don't just have this whole, uh, let's flip the coin and hope this happens. This is a mad dash for life. And he shows up. And here's what I think is very interesting in contrast to the, the other two postures of the crowd and the disciples. The way he asks the question, he says this. Uh, verse 40, he says, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And, and so, so here's the deal. If he was talking about only getting the stuff, if he was talking about only the healing, he would have said, and we know this through linguistic history, he would have come to Jesus and said, if you are willing, you can make me well. If you are willing, you can heal me. Those are the terms he would have used. 
But he doesn't say that. He says, you can make me clean. If you're willing. In other words, I'd like the stuff. I really would like the stuff, man. I would like to be healed physically. But I really trust your will more than I trust my own desires. Because what's more important to me is that I get you. I want you. And if for some reason through this whole thing, you don't see fit to make me well, you don't see fit to heal me, fine, I want you. The lepers seem to get something. He seemed to, to see, this is, this is an issue of trust. He seemed to go to Jesus in such a way as to say, I get that you know what's best for me. And I am not going to box you in and tell you that I need you to do this in order for me to accept you. But rather, I trust you enough that I know if I just get you, it's good enough. And what's Jesus' reaction? It's very different than the, no, I, I, I got to go pray. It's very different than the, uh-uh, I'm out of here. The Bible says he was filled with compassion. Something happens in the heart of God when he realizes that people want him for him. Not want him for what, they will, what God will still allow them to do. Not want him for who God will allow them to be. but who wants him for him. Notice Jesus didn't say, and this is, this is kind of the word of God, I think, to all of us. Jesus didn't say, first go get clean, and then you can follow me. He says, because you love me, because you trust me enough, it is in that that your cleansing, that your healing, that your being made whole will come. And so I think today's going to be, going to be extremely short. But I think when we look at those three characters, I think the thing that we have to walk away with as a people is, God, what in me doesn't really want you? I just want the stuff. I just want the stuff. I want the promise. See, that's what we call that functional atheism. We serve God here, but we refuse to submit ourselves to be changed by just wanting him for him. And see, the thing about it is, we don't do the changing, he does it. It's just saying, God, I, I trust you enough that you will make me. And here, here's the thing. We, when a lot of people hear Christianity, they think, well, I've got to do this rule, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And the deal is, Jesus says, nope, I'll do it. And not only will I do it, I'll make you desire it. I will make you long for the change. All you need to want is me. And so I would challenge you, especially as we, as we go into a time of communion, I would challenge you to begin to ask yourself, what areas in my life do I just worship Jesus in a functional way? I like to put the name tag on it, but I don't want Jesus for Jesus. I want Jesus for what he can do for me. And then I would ask you, Begin to ask God as he reveals those places, because he does, because the most important thing to God is that you and me are made in the image of his son. As he begins to reveal those things to you, ask him to give you the heart of the leper. The leper who says, if you will, you don't have to. That's not going to break this thing up. 
that's not going to make or break our relationship. Because I trust that what you want for me is better than what I want for me. How in the world do we think as broken humanity that we can look at our own lives and say we know what's best for us? Anybody ever make a mistake in your life by doing what you want to do? Tons, right? How does it not just make sense to say all of these things that I have wrapped my identity up in that have let me down, I don't even know how to change it, but I want him. And as he begins to change and uproot, our own history should show us that that's what we need to trust. That's what we need to trust. So as we go into this time of communion, begin to ask the Holy Spirit, I don't even know what this means in my life, God. But would you give me the heart of the leper who says, I want you for you. But this also has, for those of us, especially at a church like ANC, this has huge implications on the idea of mission. Right? Jesus' idea of mission was not get up and do, it was get up and be first. The first thing Jesus did before he met the need, because he wasn't going to let the needs determine who he was. He wasn't going to let the needs uh, consume who he was about and what he was about. But as people who are on mission, what we can never forget, no matter how busy this church gets, no matter how many projects are presented to us, no matter how many times we have our community group or whoever come up and say, yeah, but we've got this. I'm not saying we don't do this, but what I am saying is that we say, Let's hit pause and let's go back to the father who gets it all. And let's get our identity, let's get our mission fueled, reoriented. Not by what we do, but who he is. And then notice how it changed Jesus when it came to the leper. He grew with compassion. He had compassion on him. And here's the deal. When you live a busy life, all of a sudden, the very needs that you used to be excited to meet begin to drain on you. They begin to wear on you. And that compassion you used to have to meet those needs all of a sudden become weights and burdens. Because you're not moving out of the compassion that the Father gives you. We move out of the demand. And the demand is just a life suck. So as we, as a, as a new campus, as some of you new to A&C knowing that we are very mission-oriented church, and we should be. Jesus was very mission-oriented, right? The whole book of Mark is Jesus on the go, doing mission. But his mission and what he did was always filtered through his relationship to the Father. Let me close with this statement. John uh, Gerstner said this about Jesus, speaking about his identity and how people want to box him in to make them look like himself. He says, in Jesus Christ, we see virtues combine that are nowhere else combined. Tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without uncertainty, unbending conviction and complete approachability, power without insensitivity, passion without prejudice, total integrity without any rigidity, never unthinking, never a false word, never a misstep. What is that? It is the absolute beauty. It is God through human nature. This is the Jesus that Mark is not only calling us to follow. This is the Jesus that Mark is calling us to be like. A people who get their identity 
who get their value, not from the ever-changing circumstances of the day, of a relationship, of what have you, but who gets their identity from God the Father and allows everything else to flow out of that.